Hi, thanks for joining us on Him We Proclaim with our Bible teacher, Dr. John Fonville. We are continuing the series called The Glorious Second Coming of Jesus Christ. John has entitled the next several messages, The Peace of the Church. Is Jesus interested in there being peace in his church? Absolutely. And what disrupts that peace is tolerating sin, false teachers, and their false doctrine. It's upsetting to believers and disruptive to the gospel going forth. One could say it's an age-old problem. The teaching today will give us a good foundation about this important topic to believers. Here's John with the Peace of the Church, Part 1. If you have your Bibles, you can turn back to the book of 2 Thessalonians. We started this last year, and uh, just in the providence of God, we had other things that we uh, had to address. But I want to come back because I want to finish the book. Um, so if you turn back, we... Um, we started in chapter 3, and we were in chapter 3. We, we finished verses 1 through 5, so we're just going to finish the rest of the book, and then we'll uh, move on to the next study. But um, we're going to be looking uh, over the next couple weeks, just a couple weeks, at chapter 3, verses 6 through 15. It's an important uh, section of Scripture, so um, I'm excited to show you what Paul has here to teach us. Uh, Martin Luther, with the Reformation coming up soon, he taught this. This is what he said. He said that God does not need our good works, but our neighbor does. Right? God does not need our good works, but our neighbor does. So our relationship with God is based solely on his grace, and his grace is the person and work of Jesus Christ. But having... Having been made recipients of his grace, God then sends us out into the world to live out our Christian faith in love and in service to our neighbors. Um, this gospel work ethic is reinforced each week in the, uh, as we observe Holy Communion. Uh, in, in the liturgy of Holy Communion, we are served by our Lord. We are given loads of grace. Um, and then, after we have been served by our Lord, uh, this is what we pray in what's called the post-communion prayer of thanksgiving. We pray this, we say, and now, Father, now that you, through your Son, have served us, send us out to do the work you have given us to do, to love and serve you as faithful witnesses of Christ our Lord. It's an appropriate prayer. It's how we express our thanksgiving. We, we receive grace so that we can be sent forth to love and serve our neighbor in good works. So throughout our life, we have various vocations that we're given, but one of them is our employment. And so we have daily opportunities to love and serve our neighbors in our places that God has sent us to work. Yet too often, Christians undervalue the work that they do, and they fail to see their work as something that is vitally related to their relationship with Christ. This was the problem with some of the Thessalonian believers in the church. Some of the Thessalonian believers failed to see their work is vitally related to their relationship to Christ. And so what they were doing is they were living contrary to this work ethic that Paul, Silas, and Timothy, as you'll see, had modeled and taught them when they were with them in, uh, in Thessalonica. 
Back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and chapter 5, Paul had already previously addressed the, the Thessalonians' irresponsible attitude to the obligation to work. But this problem when he comes to 2 Thessalonians has escalated because it seems that false teachers who had come into the church that we read about in chapters 1 and 2 that were teaching about Christ's second coming, false things about his second coming. And this false teaching began to fuel and intensify the irresponsible attitude that the Thessalonians had towards work. Um, because back in chapter 2, if you remember in chapter 2, verse 2, the, because the Thessalonians had received this false teaching about the second coming of Christ, some of them, not all of them, but some of them had become convinced that the day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ, had already happened. And so this false teaching about the second coming of Christ, the hope of the gospel, was what was being distorted, the hope of the gospel. This, this distortion of the hope of the gospel had a negative effect on this very young church plant. So in chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says the result of this false teaching is that some of these believers had become shaken and alarmed in their faith. In chapter 3, he says that some of them had become unruly or were now living, uh, leading disorderly lives. Look at chapter 3 and just look at this with me for a moment. This is what the Apostle Paul, he says, look at verse 6. He says, now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly or a disorderly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. So the translation uh, in the ESV and the NIV says idle, but that's really misleading. The problem that Paul is seeking to address here is not laziness. It's better called disorderliness, unruliness. Paul's not confronting laziness because the people that he is confronting were working very hard. But So he's not confronting laziness. He's, he's confronting the, listen carefully, the disorder of false teaching in the church. He's, he is confronting the corruption of the hope of the gospel and the negative effects that false teaching in the church has on believers in the church. In chapter 3, verse 6, Paul says that some, not all, but some of the Thessalonians, he says they're no longer living according to the tradition, the teaching that they had received from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Look at verse 11. In verse 11, Paul uses a play on words to highlight this disorderly living. Look what he says in verse 11. He says, for we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. So he uses this play on words, and he says, some were not busy doing legitimate work, but they were very busy doing illegitimate work. They were being busybodies. 
These believers were very busily working, but they were working no longer in their places of employment. They had left their day jobs, which was legitimate work, which was beneficial to their neighbors. And he says they've become busybodies and said, instead of benefiting their neighbors, they were being a burden to them. And so the problem was not that some members of the church were not working It's that they were doing the wrong kind of work. Paul says, look at chapter 3, verses 6 and 11. He says they were busybodies. They were meddling in the affairs of others in the church. So let me give you the background so you kind of get the context of what was happening. Apparently, some of the Thessalonians had left their day jobs, which was legitimate work. They were not doing work, Paul says. But they were now busily working. They were busybodies. They were busily going around the church, spreading false teaching that they had received from the false teachers about the second coming of Christ. And while they were busily engaged spreading false teaching as busybodies, because they had left their day jobs, they were asking church members to support them financially. And what they were beginning to do is interfere with the business that properly belongs to the officers of the church, both in teaching sound doctrine and overseeing and administrating financial funds in the church. So the whole result of this disorderly behavior that Paul is now having to confront because of false teaching was disrupting the peace of the church. In fact, he's going to tell us in chapter 3, verse 16, as he concludes this letter, that the ultimate goal and the main point of this whole last section of his letter is the peace of the church. Because the peace of the church is of vital importance, Discipline of those who are living disorderly lives, disrupting the peace of the church is necessary. And that's what Paul is teaching us here. Discipline, as we have learned, is one of the marks of the true church. And so it is of importance to note that next to the second coming of Christ in chapter 2, which is the largest amount of material in this letter... This section on church discipline is the second longest section in this little letter. So the sheer amount of volume that Paul devotes to discipline should cause us to pause and note the importance that he places on discipline and why discipline is necessary for preserving the peace in the church. So in chapter 3, just by way of introduction, before we look at this in more detail, I think it's important for us to note in chapter 3, verses 6 through 15, that Paul gives to us four purposes for discipline in the church. Four purposes for discipline in the church. And these purposes that Paul teaches us highlights the necessity of discipline, the importance of discipline for preserving peace in the church. Because as I said, the overall main point and ultimate goal of what Paul is trying to get at to us is peace in the church. That's the point of this final section. So here's the first purpose for discipline. 
Discipline protects the church from false teachers and their negative influence. That's verses 7 through 9. We're going to come back to this in detail, but Paul says, for, he says, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. Paul, Silas, and Timothy. He says, because we did not act in an undisciplined, disorderly manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have the right to this financial reimbursement for our work in the gospel. He says, but we declined it so that, listen, to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example instead of following these false teachers' example of quitting your day job, self-appointing yourself in the church as the teacher of the church, and then pulling disciples away from the church and then asking them to pay you for it. In his institutes, John Calvin reminds us that the purpose of discipline, he says this, is that the good not be corrupted by the constant company of the wicked as commonly happens. He says, for such is our tendency to wander from the way because there's nothing easier than for us to be led away by bad examples for right living. It's exactly what Paul says here in, second, in, in chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. He commands the faithful members of the church, don't associate with these disorderly church members because if you do, you're going to be negatively influenced by them. He says, instead follow and imitate the example of a godly work ethic that I, Silas, and Timothy modeled for you and taught you so that you'll be positively influenced so that the peace of the church will be intact and preserved. Nothing is more destructive to the church than false teaching. And nothing is more destructive to the church and false teaching, but it's resulting disorderly behavior because of its negative effects on the church. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, when Paul is telling Timothy to confront false teachers and false teaching in the church, he says, Timothy, uh, he compares false teaching and false teachers to gangrene. And he does this to highlight the negative effects that false teaching has on the church. Paul says to Timothy, if left unchecked, false teachers and their false teaching will spread like gangrene throughout the whole church body. And so he says, he says to the church in Thessalonica, discipline is necessary to protect the church from false teachers and their negative influence on the body. Second, listen to what Paul does. This is verses 9 through 12 in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says that, and he's already taught them this, that discipline protects the church's reputation and witness in the community. You know, I've been working for seven years in, in, in both the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, and you have the Roman Catholic Church uh, abuse scandal. I have talked with unbelievers in the streets of, of, of many cities, the north and the south. 
And one of their chief complaints is about the hypocrites in the church who abused children, and the church covered it up, did nothing about it. It's an almost insurmountable cultural ill sin that has arisen in that culture to keep people from hearing the truth of the gospel. Persistent, uncorrected sin not only spreads like gangrene within the church, but it results in a bad witness outside of the church to the world. We, we see this not only in the Roman church around the world today, but we see this in evangelical churches. And we, we see these, all of these, these abuse scandals of children, which is why we have asked every leader in our church to take that, that abuse training if you want to serve our children in this church, because we're trying to do everything we can to protect our church, proper discipline, proper order in the church, because we not only want to protect our children, but we want to protect the honor of Christ and his gospel in our community. Paul had written to the Thessalonians, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he had written to them earlier about the importance of maintaining their witness to unbelievers in his first letter. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, look at verse 9. He says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. You're loving, but... Get better at it. Do it more and more. And he says, here's how you love more and more. Verse 11, aspire to live quietly. Don't be a busybody. Aspire to mind your own affairs. Don't meddle in the church. To work with your hands. Don't leave your day job and try to be a self-appointed teacher in the church and lead the church astray. He says, do these things as we instructed you. Why? Verse 12, so that you may walk properly before outsiders. That means maintaining the witness and reputation of Christ and his gospel in the church to unbelievers. And then he says, and be dependent on no one. Sponging off fellow church members in the first century would have been looked down upon socially. And this would have impeded the gospel mission and witness of the church in Thessalonica. And so Paul, Silas, and Timothy came to this young church. And Paul says in chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians that they not only modeled how not to do that, but they taught they gave them the tradition, the teaching of the apostolic doctrine of how not to do this. They showed them how engaging in legitimate work aids rather than obstructs one's witness to unbelievers. How you work matters greatly to the gospel and its witness in the church. And so rather than corrupting their neighbors by spreading false teaching... Rather than using their neighbors by sponging off fellow church members for an illegitimate work and thereby damaging the church's reputation to outsiders, Paul says, both in First and Second Thessalonians, he says, I urge you, let your brotherly love for one another increase more and more. 
Because when you love someone, you don't corrupt them with false teaching. And when you love someone, you don't mooch off them, but you work to benefit them. And so legitimate work is the arena where our faith, Paul says, works through love to serve and benefit our neighbors. Brotherly love, he says, would lead these members to refuse to become burdens on other people in the church, to refuse to entertain false teaching from these false teachers. But out of love, they would be productive members in the society in which they live, and therefore their legitimate work would contribute not only to the needs of the church, but also to the witness and mission of the church in the society in which it was founded. But the problem is that the church pays no attention to sin in its midst, either doctrinal or behavioral. The, the negative effect on the church's reputation to an unbelieving culture is greatly damaged. So the church, Paul says, you can't tolerate this. Third, he says, discipline is necessary because discipline aims towards repentance and restoration of sinning members. This is what we'll look at when we come to verses 14 through 15. For now, let's just read it, make a couple observations. We'll come back to it in more detail. But listen to what Paul says in verses 14 and 15. He says, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, so if any church member who's been confronted with both our model of life and our teaching, which has come from Christ himself, which we'll see when Paul says, I command you in, in Christ to do this, if an apostle is speaking, it's Christ speaking. So it's a powerful command that he gives. He says, if, if believers, if any members in the church don't obey this, he says, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet, do not regard, his, regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now, we will have much more to say about Paul's command here concerning the purpose of discipline for those who refuse correction in the church. But we simply know that the purpose of discipline is to bring about repentance and restoration of sinning church members. That's his purpose. Listen to John Calvin in his Institutes when he writes about discipline. If you want to read about wild stories of discipline and disorderly behavior in the church, read Calvin's biography. <laughs> Geneva was a mess. I mean, it's just unbelievable. He would be preaching, and they would break out in fistfights while he was preaching. They would be hurling slanderous words to him while he was preaching. He would be receiving death threats while in the pulpit while he was preaching. Quite a disorderly place. Reformation can be quite messy at times. But John Calvin was writing in his institutes about the purpose of discipline and he says, God has commanded this through the apostle so that those who are unwilling to repent might be overcome by shame for their baseness so that they begin to repent. They who under gentler treatment would have become more stubborn. So profit by the chastisement of their own evil is to be awakened when they feel the rod. The apostle means this when he speaks. If anyone does not obey our teaching, note that man and do not mingle with him that he might be ashamed. 
Now, we need to know carefully here, and as I said, we'll come back to this in detail, but we just need to know carefully here that the purpose of discipline is not to publicly embarrass a sinning member in the church. That's not what Paul's saying here. Church discipline can be used to really hurt people. That's not its purpose. The word translated shame could well be translated that he should be turned. The purpose, Paul says, of disciplining an erring believer who refuses the instruction of the church is to help that believer see the error of his way or her way, which when they see their sin, they have a sense of shame for it. It's not to shame them. Do you see the difference? God's law reveals our sin, and when our sin is revealed to us, we have a sense of shame for it, but that is greatly missing in our day and age, in our culture, isn't it? We need to recover a sense of sin as shame, realizing the the, the enormity of it, both towards God and against the church. Thanks, John. The message you just heard is called The Peace of the Church from the series called The Glorious Second Coming of Jesus Christ. More from the series coming up next time. The mission of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. And it's our prayer that your heart will be filled with joy and a clear understanding of the gospel and God's word. If you want to hear a past broadcast, check out our podcast in iTunes or download our app. Just search for Dr. John Fonville in iTunes or Google Play. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to visit Pastor John's church in Jacksonville, Florida, you're always welcome. You can find out more at ParamountChurch.com. I'm Josh Montez. Thanks for listening and join us next time.